Good morning. The reading for today is from Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Mackenzie. And uh, is it not obvious that Mackenzie has both the voice and the boots to read scripture? <laughs> She's awesome. And uh, I know she knows that I'm just joshing around with her. So good morning, Arcadia. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going through the book of Revelation. This is actually week five of 12 weeks, going through this incredible book. And a um, couple things before we get started. First of all, I don't know if uh, Ben mentioned this, but um, I, he did in the nine o'clock, so I think I can mention it if he didn't. But uh, if he said... If you're not coming to the <clears throat> membership class on Saturday, but you want to drop off your kids, go ahead. It's okay. And he's serious about it. That's right, right? Yeah. So, so you have that available to you. On Is there not a parent in this room that wouldn't love a few hours to just go to Fashion Square? And Okay, whatever. All right. So anyway, he's serious. You can bring him by. Just let us know if you're going to bring your kids by because uh, we need to make sure we plan for it. And then as, as you leave, you can walk through the lobby here where we're going to have the food, the nosh, he said. Uh, for the membership class, you can just sneak a bagel and walk out and, and be on your way. So anyway, um, that's one thing. The other thing is to, if you're looking for uh, message slides today, you need to scan that QR code. Again, if you didn't hear that announcement earlier in the service, scan the QR code and you'll be able to follow along with the message slides. And I will tell you when there are message slides. And uh, if you remember uh, the series prior to us starting Revelation, we did 12 or 13 weeks in 1 John. And every time I got up to preach, um, we, we read out of 1 John chapter 5, John's thesis statement on why he wrote 1 John and, and, I, and it just struck me this week that we ought to be reminded occasionally of why we're doing the book of Revelation and why John wrote the book of Revelation, and that would be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is not on your slides because I didn't bother telling Stephanie about it, but I will read it for you for, as a reminder. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Notice who is blessed. Those who read the words, those who hear the words, and those who keep the words, 
The blessing doesn't come from those who are predicting when Jesus will come back. So again, the book of Revelation is not about predicting. It is about preparing. And and just to pound this point again, okay, this last Friday, just a couple days ago, I had an opportunity. I have a very good longtime friend. We went to seminary together. We were in college together. He's 16 years younger than I am. He was a traditional student. I was an old returning student. But uh, we went to college and seminary together. He and his wife, Lisa, were the first couple I ever married as a minister. And uh, after seminary, after he got his Master of Divinity, we graduated at the same time, uh, he actually applied and got accepted to St. Andrews in Scotland to work on his PhD in New Testament theology. St. Andrews takes one new PhD candidate a year in Old Testament and one new one a year in New Testament. This guy is, he is S-M-A-R-T, he's wicked smart, okay? So he's a very smart guy. He's, uh, his dissertation has been published. He's uh, written some other essays and stuff. Smart guy, and I was kind of talking to him about how we were going through Revelation, and I said, trying to remind everybody that re- the Revelation is not about predicting, but about preparing. And he said, you know, Frank, if you think about it, the entire New Testament is about preparing. He said, and and the New Testament contains the truth of the cross and the resurrection, which is the nexus of all human history. Everything points to the cross and the resurrection, but even the cross and the resurrection, where we find salvation and victory over Satan, sin, and death, even that points to the second coming of Jesus and the parousia and the new Jerusalem. And so even in the Gospels, and certainly as you read the New Testament letters, it is about preparing. And I think that's a wonderful reminder of of what Revelation is all about. And so a little bit of review, and then we'll get into our text today. Last week, we looked at the opening of the seven seals. This is the beginning of the end. The, final, the beginning of the final judgment, the prelude to the new Jerusalem and Jesus' return. And if you recall, we talked about how there are three sets of seven judgments that are going to happen. And we're going to look at the second set of the seven judgments today. But last week, these seven seals lead to this seven trumpets that also herald, herald the coming judgment. And again, if you know anything about the importance that the Old Testament prophets place on something called the Day of the Lord you will appreciate how often we find Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation. And finally, when we get there later in this message, we will take special note of the seventh and last trumpet as that trumpet, the manifestation of what that trumpet releases will not be talked about until chapters 15 and 16, which are four weeks away. And so it's very much like the seven seals. That seventh seal actually leads to something else the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet leads to the seven bowls and the seven plagues. And three words sum up today's passage. Three words. God hates sin. Now, he hates sin, but he loves people. But God hates sin. And because God is holy and he hates sin, he's going to have to do something about it. And there's two things that God can do about it. He can give His son Jesus, his wrath for sin on the cross, which then if we give our lives to Jesus in that exchange on the cross, his wrath will never be poured out on us. That's where we find our salvation. That is good news for those who believe in Jesus. Or if you choose not to believe in Jesus, he's got to pour out his wrath in another way. And so here you go. This is a heavy text today. In fact, for the next four or five weeks, it's going to be really heavy. 
really tough stuff, and I'm trying to handle it with the greatest of humility, but also make sure that I proclaim the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of this, and remember that even though it's really heavy, we as believers, if you're a believer, we should be blessed by this text because there is gospel truth and blessing in this text today. So, long passage today. Four chapters. It's the longest of the 12 weeks we're doing. So there's going to be a lot of reading today, and there's no way to cover everything. And so there are going to be holes in this sermon today. And I know that many of you read ahead, which I appreciate. And I just hope and pray that I scratch all of your itches today, those of you who read ahead. And if I don't get to it, it's because we just simply don't have time in 45 minutes to get to everything. By the way, if you miss any of the Revelation messages, it would be really helpful for you if you go on our website and either listen to the audio or watch them on our YouTube channel. So go all the way back, open your Bibles and go all the way back to Revelation chapter 8. That's where we're going to start today. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. John writes, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw seven angels, the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censure. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden uh, altar, before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So this is just, verse one is just reiterating what we closed our message with last week. Uh, the seventh seal is opened and it starts with an, half an hour of total silence because of the awe surrounding the opening of the seventh seal. But then in the wake of the, si- of the silence, the seven trumpets are introduced and they're ready for action. And, if you, and here you go. Again, I just want to mention, if you thought the seven seals were rough, the seven trumpets ratcheted up a little bit. Gets rougher. Now in ancient Israel, trumpets were used for four things primarily. And there, this is a slide on your phone. They were used to proclaim the ascension of a king. So that was a celebration they, they were used as a prelude to any of the Israelite feasts. So again, that would be celebration. They were also used to declare war, to rally troops. And then finally, they were used by prophets and those with the prophets to proclaim a message that was going to be about the coming day of the Lord. So they, the, the trumpets are, are deeply related with the day of the Lord and, and the coming uh, end judgment. And you see the incense with the prayers there in verses 3 and 4. A common use of incense is to symbolize the solemn nature of your prayers. Now, we can have prayers of joy. We can have prayers of thanksgiving. We can have prayers of, of exuberance and enthusiasm. But we can also have, as the, as the Psalms show us, we can also have prayers of lament and prayers of complaint and prayers of grief. And then there's also prayers where we just exalt God, and then there are prayers when we are sad and we're solemn about something, and incense is specifically to manifest an understanding that what's about to happen is actually sad. It's good news for God's people, but it's also sad and mystifying for everyone else. And we're going we're gonna to deal with a lot of that today, and we're going to get into that. And then verse 5 is the judgment that is often symbolized by fire. So the trumpets, then just like the seven seals, the trumpets are introduced 
In the beginning, there's four trumpets right together in the beginning, condensed, and then there are three more trumpets that are spread out, and the last three trumpets get way more pressed than the first four trumpets. And so let's get to those four trumpets in verses 6 through 12. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, and the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all, grass was, all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had become bitter or, or poisoned. And the fourth angel blew the trumpet, <clears throat> blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. <clears throat> so these first four trumpets... These judgments are reminiscent of the ten plagues that ravaged Egypt just prior to the Exodus. There is a ton of allusion in um, uh, Revelation to uh, the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, and, and, and you should be aware of that. It's not just the prophets and the wisdom literature that Revelation is pointing back to, but it's also the, the Exodus in, uh, in, in, that came out of Egypt. And trumpet one was the first judgment. A third of the earth, not people, but a third of the earth is burned up. Trumpet two, the second judgment assails one third of the sea, so salt water, and a third of all the salt water on earth. Trumpet three, a third of the, this, uh, this third judgment then takes out a third of all the fresh water. So you can see how God is working through all of the quarters or categories of creation. And then trumpet four, this one goes after the sky, and one third of day and one third of night are each affected. And so far, directly, only creation has suffered under these judgments. Indirectly, there are some, some human casualties, but not directly. But we're going to get to the direct casualties. But then, chapter 8, verse 13, we need to spend a minute or two on this verse. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we have this eagle crying out overhead. The eagle symbolizes God's messenger, and, and God's messenger is proclaiming to the whole world because the eagle is overhead. And notice the first three words out of the eagle's mouth. Woe, woe, woe. And who are these woes directed? It's to those who dwell on the earth, and more specifically, it's to those who dwell on the earth who refuse the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these three woes will correspond to the last three trumpets yet to sound, and these three trumpets will be considerably more drastic than the first four, and they will come against the naysayers of Jesus. Now, we've been through a lot of the gospels over the years in, in, at, at Redemption Church, and maybe you've been around when we've been through the gospels, and in the gospels, we, you get to a place often where uh, Jesus is talking mostly to the professional religious people, but he starts his conversation with them by saying, woe to you, right? 
That's not a very good, have you ever started, like at work, have you ever walked up to a subordinate and said, woe to you? I mean, that's just like, so I have often said, I never want to be part of the woe group when it comes to Jesus. So this eagle flying over is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. So here's yet another warning. These warnings from God just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. Anyway, get ready, because this is going to get really tough. I keep saying that. I just want to prepare you. But it is necessary. So why? Why would it be necessary? Well, these last three judgments are directed at the rebellious nature of humanity, the wickedness that we perpetuate. We are born into sin. And no matter how much you love Rousseauian philosophy, you cannot deny that the world is in trouble, that there are problems in this world. And it's rooted in the sinfulness of human beings. And we're seeing more evidence of that right now. you you got Hamas attacking Israel. Israel's going to respond. It's going to get worse. I just read that the United States is sending a naval fleet over there. It's just going to get worse. And of course, everybody's pointing fingers at everybody but themselves. It's Hamas who's evil. No, it's the Israelites who are evil. Everybody doing, doing this and this and this. The problem is we all have this sin in us. We were born into it, and yet Satan has blinded us to this reality. And so we believe these goofy ideas that we're actually all pretty good, and it's just a few people like Charles Manson. And it's not true. That's the problem. The sin that we indulge, this is what this judgment is against, and it's And it's especially against those who think things like this. As they're committing sin, there is no God, so why not? Or, how will God know? If there is a God, he must be too busy to look at what I'm doing. Okay. Now, there is no God, and how will God know? Those aren't my words. Those are both quotations from Old Testament wisdom literature, where the author of that wisdom literature is trying to point out how foolish it is to behave as if God isn't real. And here we have in Revelation, if, I know if you don't believe the Bible to be true, you don't believe the Bible has any authority, you think it's all myth and legend, I get that. And you're not going to buy into this. And I understand that. And I get that. But for those who claim to know Jesus and believe the Bible, this is what Scripture is teaching us. And we need, whether we like it or not, we need to be open to it because this is the truth of God's Word. And ultimately, we will be blessed by it. And God does win at the end. Well, here you go. It takes 21 verses in chapter 9 to describe the next two trumpets. Only seven verses to describe the first four trumpets. So here's... Uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke, like the smoke of of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the shaft, with the smoke of the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, and they will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. This fifth trumpet is wild. And certainly we have some questions about this, right? 
So the star that falls, the star is an angel who has defied God and has been released for his evil purposes under the sovereignty of God, and this would be Satan, and he has the keys to the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is often translated as the abyss, and so what is the bottomless pit? The bottomless pit, the abyss, is where evil dwells and Satan rules. But ultimately, it's going to be Satan's eternal permanent home and Satan's demise. As in chapter 20 of Revelation, it is where Satan is thrown and locked up for all eternity, never to rule his evil over anyone again. Again, that should be good news to us because Jesus wins. But what's with these locusts coming out of the abyss? The locusts are rooted in Old Testament apocalyptic theology, especially from the book of Joel, chapter 2, The army of locusts are demons that are used to attack and inflict scorpion-like pain on those who have not embraced the gospel of Jesus. Now notice, this begins the judgment, not against creation. We, We saw that in the first four trumpets, but rather against the rebellious. And these locusts will do this. They will sting the rebellious for five months What is the average lifespan of a locust? This is not a trick question. It's five months. And they will not kill those who have refused the gospel of Jesus. Rather, they will just inflict their stingers. We live in Maricopa County, and specifically, we're in the Arcadia area, which used to be loaded with citrus trees, which scorpions love. And we're close to Camelback and the Phoenix Mountain Preserves, which scorpions love. I'm guessing there are people in here who have been stung by scorpions. Raise, yeah, raise your hand. It's not pleasant, is it? The first time you get stung by a scorpion, you pray that it'll be what? The last time you are stung by a scorpion. And yet here come these locusts and they're going to sting over and over and over. And, and here's, here's what just blows my mind. The pain will be so tormenting that people will seek death, but they will be unable to find death. Okay, I stopped there and for weeks have been mulling over this and studying this because this is not the first time that something like this happens in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's already the second time that something like this happens. But I'm looking at it and I don't get it. And I feel like the the question that we should be asking is this. Why would they seek death and not seek God? Why? Isn't it obvious at this point? Isn't it clear what's going on? Why? That's exactly right. See, see we're, we're, we're sure that if things just continue to get worse, that'll drive people toward God. You remember 9-11? Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, you know, uh, the Sunday after 9-11 was the highest church attendance uh, in, in decades, Okay. And everybody said, that's it, they're coming back to Jesus. And Tom said, within four weeks, it'll be lower than it was before 9-11, and he was right. The fourth Sunday after 9-11, it was 5% lower than it was before 9-11. This idea that God revealing himself in some way, he's tried everything, he sent Jesus, he did miracles, he healed people. Now he's got these locusts that are like scorpions, and people are going, nah, Remember last week in chapter 7 when God was coming and the people who refused the gospel, they ran into caves and then prayed that the mountain would fall down on them. So what? 
So they would not have to face the one who is coming. They would not have to face God. What is going on? Why won't people believe? I, I, I read essays on this. I looked. I, I thought about this. And so much of what I found has actually, uh, and this doesn't necessarily make it right, but it has affirmed my experience in 25 years of trying to do this and trying to figure this out. Number one, an evangelism of fear or argumentation doesn't work. Trying to frighten someone into the kingdom of God really doesn't work. It's all through revelation. It doesn't really work. There are a few who come. There are some who come. But it's not because they're afraid of God. It's because the Spirit moved in their life. And, and, and I've read a lot. I, I think I'm fairly smart. I mean, I've got one degree from GCU, so I'm pretty awesome. And, and, and yet I know I can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. It's impossible to do that. Salvation is a work of the Spirit, and I'm not the Holy Spirit. My call is just to present the good news of Jesus however that context might be, and whatever it might be called for. So then people move and say, well, if it's not an evangelism of fear or an evangelism of argumentation, how about this? And this is the big one now for the last 10 years. It's an evangelism of love and kindness. Love and kindness. We're just going to love and kindness people into the kingdom of God. When they see how much we love and how kind we are, they're just going to come rushing for Jesus. Guess what? It's not true. I'm a nice guy. I, I, I serve people with absolutely no expectation of recompense. And I will tell them, what do I owe you? You don't owe me anything. I love Jesus. And so he called me to love you. I want to serve you. I want to help you. Okay, thanks. And they're out of there. But Jesus, yeah, see you later. But I was kind to you. Yeah, I know. Other people are kind too. That's fine. That doesn't work either. You know why? Salvation is a work of the Spirit. Unless the Spirit comes and helps make sense of this to us, you're going to think it's goofy, it's stupid, it's a myth, it's a legend. It's unfair. Do you know how many people I have told me, your faith, your God, your Messiah is cruel. It's cruel. No, it's not. No, it's not. Do you know what genuine love is? Genuine love is God saying, you sinful people, you caused this, you sinned, you got into this mess. I'm going to send my one and only son to die on the cross as an atonement for your sin so that you don't have to pay the consequence of that sin. That's not cruelty, that is love. That's what genuine love is. And here's something else that love is. And, and we know this inherently in our own lives, but we hate, we hate to talk about it in terms of God. If you're a parent, any parents, anybody, I'm a parent, anybody have a two-year-old? Okay, so your two-year-old, your two-year-old believes in their heart with all of their heart, and it's in their heart, so it must be right. Your two-year-old believes in their heart that it'll be really fun to run out into traffic, okay? You as a parent, you're going to stand there and go, yes, honey, I affirm you in your belief. Go run out into traffic. That's just stupid, right? It's silly. It's ridiculous, okay? Right? Love is tackling them and pulling them away and telling them not to do it again. But when it comes to theology and God and Jesus, to go to somebody whose life is on this trajectory, you, and by the way, this has been going on for millennia, the prophets went to the kings of Israel and said, you're going this way. This is going to result in destruction. 
It's going to be a problem. And what would the kings do? The kings would say, off with their heads, throw them in a well, put them in prison. They don't want to hear that. That's unloving. In our world today, love is nothing but affirming, and that's it. No questions asked, no truth spoken, nothing. Just whatever I'm doing, you have to affirm me, otherwise you don't love me. Kids are leaving their parents. You're not affirming me in my whatever. And so I'm leaving my parents because they're not affirming me because obviously they don't love, love me. No, they do love you. They're just speaking truth to you. And that's the purest form of love is when somebody has the courage, especially in our culture today, to actually speak truth to somebody. Now, I understand some people can speak truth without very much love in their heart. I get that. But even when it's spoken with great love and grace and mercy, people say, mm -mm, not for me, that's not love. That's not our culture's definition of love. But that is genuine love. And not only that, I'll say it again, it's also a love that drove God the Father to send his son for the atonement of our sins so that we don't have to pay that consequence. One more thing on this. One more thing on this. Here's the other time I hear that God is cruel. God is cruel because he inflicts justice on sinners. Well, he doesn't inflict justice on all sinners. He didn't inflict any justice on your sin. If you know Jesus, he inflicted it on Jesus. That seems pretty graceful to me. But they don't like a God of justice. Again, a God of justice is a cruel God. And yet, when something unjust happens to them, what do they say? I need justice. Well, you need justice, but apparently God's not allowed to have justice. Don't you hear those chants all the time at those rallies? What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. God has waited millennia to execute his justice. And you're standing there going, I want justice now. And yet they say God is cruel. You see this? This makes sense. This is logical. But if the Spirit isn't opening your eyes, if the Spirit isn't opening your ears, if the Spirit isn't opening your mind, you will reject this. Because it's safer and more comfortable to say, I know better. And so my prayer is always not, can I out-argue this person? I can easily out-argue a college freshman. I have never won one of those arguments. Do you understand what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying, right? Okay. My prayer isn't that I out-argue anybody. My prayer isn't that I scare anybody. My prayer isn't that I love somebody into the kingdom. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would come and change hearts because that's the movement of the Spirit that brings, about, that brings about salvation. All right, more on these locusts. We get more detail. 7 through 11. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, sting and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So you see an army of these creatures coming at you? <laughs> Yikes. And yet the irony is they still refuse to turn to God. And who's the commander of this army of locusts? It's Abaddon, Apollyon. It's Satan. And then verse 12, which we didn't read, then tells us that the first woe is now past. 
The first woe being the fifth trumpet, and the second woe is about to come. The second woe is the sixth trumpet, verses 13 through 18. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, they were prepared at any time, meaning, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times, 10,000 uh, 10, times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of, the, of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So verse 13, understand this is coming from God, the Holy One, the Sovereign One, the Righteous One, the Just One who cannot and will not allow sin to go without consequence. And for those who are in Christ, the consequence of sin, this bowl of wrath that would be poured out on us, this condemnation, all those consequences are taken by Jesus on the cross and victorious through his resurrection. But for those who refuse the love and mercy and redemption and grace of the gospel, I'm sorry to say this day will come. And I, believe me, I'm not happy about it. I'm intense about it. But I am not happy about it. And I don't think you should be happy about it either because it's sad and it's mystifying. But I am thankful that in Christ, we will not be a part of that judgment. Verses 14 through 17, these four angels command not a human army, but a terrifying demonic force of 200 million. I did the math. I went to North High School. I know how to do multiplication. And I'm proud of that. And this force of 200 million does not invade the kingdom of God, but rather a godless, rebellious world. And notice that this army brings three plagues on those who have defied and mocked God. Fire, sapphire, which is another word for smoke, and sulfur. And all three, fire, smoke, and sulfur, are symbols of hell. So, verses 20 and 21, possibly the two saddest and most mystifying verses of everything that we would read today. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or talk or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Like I said, of all the verses we read, these are the saddest and most mystifying. You, you watch all of this happen and you still don't repent? I, I, I don't get it. And again, it's not like God isn't making it obvious. Well, if God would just do a miracle in my life, then I would believe. No, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Scripture is replete with these miracles being shown to people and people going, whatever. John chapter 11. Please go home and read John chapter 11. Jesus raises a guy from the dead. Many believed when they saw it, and many others walked away wishing to kill Jesus because he had done this. They did not believe. And listen to what 
the scholar G.B. Caird writes about this. He's a famous re Revelation scholar, and this is one of the most important quotes, I think, that he's ever written about the book of Revelation. He writes, these two verses, chapter, ni uh, chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, these two verses, in these verses, lie an important theological truth. The powers of evil have an immense army that relentlessly keeps coming and is steadily reinforced so that no earthly order can find security from its attacks except in the final victory of God. No earthly order can you find security, and yet that's what we keep going for. We're going to find it in the stock market. We're going to find it in the Democrats. We're going to find it in the Republicans. We're going to find it in our military. We're going to find it in philosophy. We're going to find it in all these things. We can't find security there, he reminds us. And then he writes this. We must wrestle with the fact that the gospel cannot be expected to produce a steady whittling away of Satan's power until he is reduced to impotence, but rather a steady hardening of resistance leading ultimately to the last great battle. And that's what we're seeing now. This is, this is what happens. This is the 10 plagues in Egypt. If you read through uh, Exodus and, and, you know, when God sends these 10 plagues on Egypt because Pharaoh won't let his people go. When you get to plague five or six, aren't you thinking, come on, Pharaoh, isn't this obvious? You could save yourself a lot of trouble if you would just let them go, if you just would believe God. But he doesn't do it. His heart keeps getting hardened. And I find this quote from Cared helpful in the midst of how confusing it is for so many of us, that in all of our progress and intelligence in this world, things are not getting better, but they're getting worse. Have you noticed that? Do you understand that in the 20th century, more people died from wars during the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined? Things are not getting better, they're getting worse. It reminds me of what one theologian and scholar said at a conference I attended a few years ago. He said, I don't believe in evolution, I am a devolutionist. Things are not good and getting better, but they are bad and getting worse. Remember last week we talked about how it's going to get worse before it gets better, and the only way it gets better is when Jesus comes. So, you ready for Trumpet 7? Well, guess what? There's an interlude before Trump, Trumpet 7. From 10.1, chapter 10, verse 1, to 11.14, John pauses to give us some additional information and this 25-verse interlude between Trumpet 6 and 7, remember last week we had an interlude between Seal 6 and 7, the purpose of this interlude is threefold, and here they are, and this is on your phone. It's to reaffirm John's mandate to proclaim these things to all people and to write them down. Second of all is to solemnly declare that the end is near, the day of the Lord is at hand. And third, most importantly for you and me today, John explains that God's plan for the church during this time of tribulation is to faithfully bear witness to Jesus and the gospel even in the midst of the terrible tribulation and of those who staunchly oppose Jesus and the gospel. And there's a warning that comes with this. The faithful defense of Jesus and the gospel by those of us in the church will not be pleasant and easy. But know this also. The end of the story is the vindication of the church and its people and the conversion of many. Just a couple of additional notes before we get to Trumpet 7. In chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, in Old Testament fashion, John is told to take the scroll of the word of God and to eat it, and it will be sweet as honey in his mouth, but in his stomach it will be bitter and it will cause him to have an upset tummy. 
So this is the message that he's giving to the church. Listen, all of us. The word of God is sweet, beautiful, and filled with the truth. But it doesn't always go down easy, especially with people who don't buy it. Proclaiming God's truths is a blessing and a privilege, but it comes with serious pushback. The prophets experienced that. The Apostle Paul experienced that. Ten of the twelve apostles of Jesus were martyred for their faith. Ten of the twelve. One committed suicide, and the other one, John, got to live out his life. But it's not like they didn't try. They did boil him in oil, and he survived that. I'm not sure how that happened, but he did. But there is both joy and pain in preaching the gospel. For those of you who are parents, it's kind of like being a parent, right? It's kind of like raising kids, both joy and pain, right? Oh, come on, there isn't a single parent here who would say, oh, it's all joy. (laughs) Second of all, in in 11.8, John symbolically names the cities containing many who have resisted and not believed the gospel. He symbolically names them Sodom and Egypt. Now, why would he do that? It's because Sodom in the Old Testament symbolizes the overwhelming sexual immorality of those who refuse to come to Christ. And Egypt symbolizes, it symbolizes all the people who have been persecuted, harassed, mocked, and oppressed, uh, who have persecuted, harassed, and oppressed God's people over history. So two woes down, one more coming. And interestingly, the third woe, the seventh trumpet, though it'll turn out to be the most devastating of the woes, For those who reject Jesus, it's also good news for believers. And that's what McKinsey read for us today. I'll reread it. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This is 1115. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That sounds a lot like a prelude to Revelation 21 and 22. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, for the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple... In heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. That last verse sounds a lot like Oklahoma, but apparently that's going to be spread over the entire earth in in the end days. So, now we read that and we may wonder, well, what's so bad about the seventh trumpet? That doesn't sound bad. Well, like I said, the manifestation of the seventh trumpet doesn't come until chapters 15 and 16. Um, here's here's a, a quote from chapter 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for in them the wrath of God is finished. Now, listen to that language. What were the last three words that Jesus uttered on the cross? It is finished. And here, the wrath of God is finished. These are bookends. There's, Jesus says, the salvation of God's people is finished, and, G- and, and God says, my wrath is now finished. And that, at the end of 16, that is what is going to set up the final battle, and then uh, the end of Satan, and then the coming of the new Jerusalem. But there are six very important facts and results of the seventh trumpet that are actually embedded in 11, 17, and 18, and I want to list them for you, and they are in your phone on those slides. Number one is from verse 17. God is the Almighty, and he reigns, 
and his power uh, and his power is the final word in everything. And then two through six are all from verse 18. Number two, the nations raged. If you're in an RC and you're meeting this week, I would hope that during this week, during your RC, you would take a look at Psalm 2 because this is a reference back to Psalm 2 and the entirety of Psalm 2. And it would be worth studying Psalm 2 in the midst of this. The nations raged. Why? Because the world hates the idea that Christ's kingdom is coming to reign over the powers, authorities, and the dark spirits of this world. As mentioned before, the gospel doesn't really chip away at those who love darkness, but rather darkness simply digs in further. Number three, God's wrath comes. Two things here, and these are important. Number one, God has withheld his wrath for millennia from those who refuse his grace and mercy, but that's over now. I hear people say all the time, God is really impatient. No, he's not. He's withheld this judgment for millennia. We're impatient. We are impatient. God is patient, but he's not eternally patient. And second of all, for those who have embraced Jesus in the gospel, God's wrath is a non-issue because Jesus took God's wrath for our sin on the cross, and that is good news. And then number four, the dead are judged. So who are the dead that he's referencing? And what does this mean? Two answers have been posited, and, and um, they are both likely true, but at least one of them is true. Number one, the dead are those who have died before Jesus comes again. Everybody who's died before the book of Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, God's people and not God's people, and they will all rise and be judged. And if they belong to God, they'll be embraced and brought into the kingdom of God, not condemned. And if they don't belong to God, they will face condemnation, which they were born into in the first place. And second of all, the dead are simply any who are spiritually dead because they've refused Jesus. And God's judgment is going to fall on them. So they're very similar, but maybe a little bit different context. Number five, God's people are rewarded. Both Old Testament and New Testament believers will enjoy eternity in the New Jerusalem with Jesus without pain, without tears, without sin, without darkness, without scorching heat and scorching sun, which we talked about last week, which I think would be really good news in Phoenix, and without suffering. And then number six, the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. And don't get confused here. That does not mean that the environmentally unfriendly people will be destroyed, but rather those whose sin corrupt, destroy, and debase the world with their unrepentant sin will face the consequences. And these facts and results point to, these six items point to one thing. God is going to win the final ultimate cosmic battle that is yet to come but soon on its way. And to wrap up today, we got to hit verse 19 again because it's such a beautiful and assuring vision. For John to be given this vision and for him to give it to us is huge He writes, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. He got to see the ark of the covenant. You'd think he was Harrison Ford, but he's not. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And that sighting of the ark of the covenant in heaven is God reminding and affirming that his promise, hope and covenant with his people through Jesus Christ is true and final. That's good news. And he's telling John, rest assured, as hard as this will be, I've got this. And you have nothing to worry about. And this all points back again to the cross of Christ. And so for us too, as difficult as this might be, God is saying he's got this and we have nothing to worry about. Amen. Next week, 
We look at something called the cosmic battle in chapter 12. It's really cool because it's, um, it's a pregnant woman and a beast, so, and a dragon. Sorry, a dragon, so that'll be interesting. And then on the 22nd, we look at the earthly battle. The 29th is the army of the Lamb. And, and then finally, on November 5th, we get to the last of the sevens, the bowls and the plagues. And that sets us up for the final three weeks of Revelation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would have the courage to embrace these truths, that we would see within the midst of some really challenging and difficult things, we would also see your grace and your mercy there because of your son Jesus and what he's done for us. God, thank you for that. I pray that we would be able to see that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir us up. We know your Spirit's here right now, and I just pray that we would welcome your Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.